0: You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Church, and I'm delighted to be with you to continue part two of uh, this this Acts chapter two Pentecost uh, sermon series we're doing here. This is kind of like mini series in the book of Acts, I feel like. Uh, There's so much to unpack in chapter two, and so we're breaking it up into different sections. Today we're going to cover part two, which Heidi just read, which is verses 14 through 41. Now, before we get to this, most people look at this text and they believe this is really the first sermon in the early church. You guys are probably wondering, why don't we do two-minute sermons? Because uh, Heidi just read that in about two minutes. Uh, that'd be great, right? Uh, there's more to it, right? He, Luke's given us, uh, he's given us the, the core of the message here. Uh, but Peter gives up, gets up, and he he lifts his voice, and he gives his first sermon of the church. Now, I'm going to show you something, just a moment, don't put it on the screen yet, Nick. I'm going to show you something that's really a rare gem, okay? This is a rare mint condition, one-of-a-kind picture, the only one I might add, of when I preached my first sermon. All right, go ahead and put it up there. Gosh, there's a lot wrong with this man. <laughs> there is a lot wrong with this. Okay, uh, let's just start with uh, that. That suit, <laughs> um, man. I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, I look like I'm interviewing to to be uh, you know a paper salesman at Dunbar Mifflin right now. Um, it's about two sizes too big. Number one, uh, uh, I love my grandma. To death, but I was too old for her to still be cutting my hair. Uh, that looks terrible as well. Uh, the only good thing about this picture is probably the Bible I was holding, <laughs> because that Bible is probably my favorite Bible I ever had. Uh, a lot of good memories uh, preaching out of that that Bible. Now, there's only one copy of this sermon that I preached. Uh, it is on a CD because it's not on the internet. Uh, I've scrubbed it from existence. And so it is hidden in a safe in my house, and no one else can get there. So you'll never get to hear it. But what we're looking at today is really Peter's first sermon. And what we see, you can take that picture off the screen, by the way, Nick. Uh, <laughs> what we're seeing is something radically different from what I did that day uh, 15 years ago. And even what we're seeing today. Uh, You see, Peter gets up, and he addresses this crowd, and there are no traditions. There are no people wearing suits uh, like we're doing today. There's no liturgy like creeds. There's no buildings. There's no Bibles even. There's no bands, no banners, nothing with the letter B at all. (laughs) The early church just gathered, and he proclaimed this one simple message, that Jesus Christ was crucified and that he actually resurrected. And in fact, when you look at the book of Acts, this is, this is what galvanized the church, this central message that Jesus Christ really lived, and he was crucified, and he actually resurrected from the dead. And now 2,000 years later, Washington, D.C., in a room that is, that is full today, and churches across the world, we see this early movement birthed out of this upper room Or a few hundred people. You see, when Jesus was having his earthly ministry, thousands followed him. But when he went to the cross and was crucified, the the masses scattered. And there's this core group of about 120 people, a small group of people, and they're up in this upper room, and they're waiting for God to move in power. And he does. And was birthed out of this movement is why billions and billions of people today claim to know this Jesus. Because he actually lived, he was crucified, and he was resurrected. And what makes this so different? This wasn't the only movement in the day of Jesus Christ. There were other Messiah figures in his day. There were other people who claimed to be chosen by God, who claimed that they were going to save Israel. I'm just going to list a few for you today. Uh, there was Simon of Perea, who was a former slave of Herod. He rebelled and he was killed by the Romans. He had a short, uh, short claim to fame there. There was a throngis, who was a shepherd who Turned into a rebel leader. There was Benahem Ben Ben Judah, who allegedly was the son of Judea, uh, excuse me, Judas of Galilee, and he partook in a revolution as well against the fortress of Masada. And then there was Simon Bar Cuba. I don't even know if I said that right. Probably doesn't matter because nobody remembers them anyways. Uh, (laughs) does, Does anybody know any of these people I just listed? Okay, so we have no one who's a fan of the historian Josephus because there's very little written about these guys, right? You see, there's a difference. These men lived, and they claimed to be something, and they died, and they were forgotten. Because what they claimed to be was not actually truth. But then we have Jesus. He comes on the scene. He lives. He dies. He is resurrected, and he is exactly who he said he was. That's the difference. That's why this movement of Christianity took off, and then we see it right here at Pentecost. This this first sermon is delivered in power, and Peter's proclaiming this message that makes Jesus stand out before the watching world, this message that makes this Christian faith so unique, and that is that Jesus Christ died, was actually resurrected from the dead. And so our main idea is we look at this sermon. There's so much we can unpack from this text, and so we're going to try to do our best to to get the meat of it out. The main idea is simply this, that the gospel is the only hope for all people at all times. This message wasn't just the hope for those listening at Pentecost, but this is the message, the hope for all people at all times. And we're going to unpack this through our outline today, looking at four ways that this kind of reveals itself in the, the text. Number one, we're going to see that the reason this is the best hope for all people at all times is because we have equal access to the Spirit, anyone who believes in Jesus. Number two, we're going to see because the message of Christianity is the one thing that convinces the mind is truth. Number three, we're going to see that it's the one message that cuts to our heart. It actually deals with our heart problems that we have. And then fourthly, we'll see that it is only through this message of hope that Peter's proclaiming that we actually can experience new life and purpose. Let's go ahead and dive into the text. Point number one, equal access to the Spirit. As Heidi just read, verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour, which is about 9 a.m. of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Let's stop right there. So just kind of recapping where we are in the book of Acts. Acts chapter one, Jesus tells his disciples, wait for the Holy Spirit. He ascends into heaven, just like he told him that that, that he would. And then they're waiting, they're praying for God to move. And then last week we saw the spirit descends, right? and Pentecost begins, and the Spirit descends, and, and these fire tongues descend on the disciples, and they begin to speak in other languages that weren't their native language, and people are hearing the gospel. They're hearing the, the, about the kingdom of God in their own language, and it's crazy, right? It's unimaginable. This is rushing wind comes in, kind of like when you're at a metro stop, and the metro just comes in, whoosh, right? It's just loud sound comes in, and then they're, they're filled with the Spirit, and they're, they're, they're teaching, they're proclaiming truth, and people are like, this is weird. Like, what's going on? They must be drunk, Peter stands up and he's like, guys, it is 9 a.m., okay? The bars aren't open in Jerusalem yet, all right? It's not happy hour two-for-one margaritas. People aren't drunk yet, okay? That's not what's happening here. They're filled with the Spirit. What's happened here is God has put his Spirit in them. And he addresses the crowd. And he tells them that this is according to prophecy. The prophet Joel himself said this would happen. He says, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. For what purpose? So your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So your young men shall see visions. So your old men shall dream dreams. So your male servants and female servants as well. And in those days, I'll pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. It's awesome what's happening here. Peter's saying young and old alike, male and female alike, sons and daughters alike. God has pouring out his spirit. You look back in the Old Testament, you look back in the Old Covenant, and you see that the Spirit primarily operated within prophets and priests and kings. And even in in the book of Amos, Amos says in Amos 3.7 that God does nothing without revealing his secrets to who? The prophets. The prophets are the ones who knew God and spoke from God. But here we see something radically different happening, and it's not just for the apostles. You see, we look at the apostles a lot of times, we say, man, these guys, they were called by Jesus Christ himself, right? They saw the resurrection. They were ordained. They had authority, and they did. But notice, they're not the only ones who get the Holy Spirit here. Peter says it's not just for the prophets. The reason why this message is hope for all people for all times is because you don't have to be a pastor to share it. You don't have to be clergy. You don't have to be an apostle. Pentecost means that everyone can know God and make him known because the Spirit has been poured out on men, women, daughters, sons, old, young. We can know God, all of us. He has revealed himself to us, and through his spirits, we now are like prophets. We can speak just like Peter does here, with boldness, with clarity, because the same Holy Spirit that Peter is referring to here, the same Holy Spirit that empowered Peter to stand up and raise his voice and speak. It's the same Holy Spirit that lives in us. We have equal access to the same Spirit. So today, we are empowered, just like the apostles were, to know God and to make him known through his Spirit. And then he continues in this sermon. He says, they're not drunk. The Spirit is on them, right And he convinces them in the mind. He says in verse 36, he gets to the end of his sermon. He says, let all the household of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You see, as the the audience is listening to this this sermon that Peter's giving, he ends and he says, hey, this is the reason I'm telling you this. I want you to know for certain who Jesus is. I want you to have a great deal of certainty of who God made Jesus to be. That is Christ and Lord. You see, the audience who's listening, they really only have two categories to put Jesus in. In one sense, they can put him in the category with our, our dudes like Athrongis and, and uh, uh, Ben-Haman and all these guys, Simon, all these guys who were these false uh, kind of prophets, false messiahs who came, and, and they were disregarded, right? All right? We don't see billions of churches around the world named after them because they were disregarded. They weren't true messiahs. But the other category was, was to treat Jesus as who he is, right? If he's, not, if he's not going to be discarded as a false messiah, then he must be the messiah, the risen Lord, both Christ and Lord. There's really no middle ground. The, the audience would not have wrestled with this and thought, well, maybe we can just see Jesus as a good guy. Uh, may, maybe we can just see Jesus as someone who did some good things. There's no room for that. The Jewish audience would have either, either seen Jesus as the true messiah, the one who is both Christ and Lord, or a false messiah, one of these men who just should be disregarded. And it's not like the, the audience is gullible here. It's not just that Peter is so convincing with his eloquent words. They don't have the, the lights and the fog machines. They're not trying to create an experience to captivate people's feelings and make them convinced by their feelings. No, what does Peter do? He, tries, he, he goes to the mind. He starts there. So I want you to know for certain that this message is true. You see, I actually believe that this audience was probably a harder audience to reach than even what we find today. I actually think this, this Jewish audience who was listening to Peter—they they probably had more questions and were probably more skeptical than a postmodern DC resident. Peter probably had more uh, more difficulty trying to convince them than a bunch of hill staffers and hipsters, right? Why? Because they had the closest proximity to the crucifixion. And they also had the the least incentive to actually believe. There was no incentive for actually believing this message. There's no cultural capital to gain. There's no status to gain for believing this. And they had the closest proximity, which means that this isn't happening years and years later. When Jesus is, excuse me, when Peter is saying this message, this is two months after the crucifixion. The proximity to this, you you would have known that if there were alternative ideas of what happened to Jesus, those things were circulating. People were hearing different opinions about who Jesus was and what he he came to do, and they were confused because this event just happened. It's not as if Peter traveled 200 miles away 20 years later and said, oh, have you guys heard of this Jesus guy? These are people who had the greatest proximity to what actually happened, and if there were actual arguments that held water, what are tight arguments for what Jesus was that wasn't the truth, then I would have to believe 3,000 people would not have believed in him that day. But Peter gets up and he begins to appeal to their minds. He gets right into their belief system. He goes straight to the Old Testament. He says, you guys know the Hebrew scriptures, right? And if you know the Hebrew scriptures, then you know this about David. And if you think this is right about David, and you think this is right about David, then why don't you believe this? He goes to Psalm 16. He says, hey, you know know about David, right? And he quotes in in verse 27 here. He says, uh, David in Psalm 16 says, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one see corruption. Well, there's a problem with that, Peter says. The problem is we can go to David's tomb. He's here with us. Psalm 16 can't predominantly be about David, ultimately be about David, because we can go open up his tomb and he's still there. So what's he referring to? Well, he says in verse 30, David, therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So, so Peter says, hey, this is how we read this. <laughs> we look back in the Psalms and we see that, that a lot of the things David wrote were actually things that he did in his life. But there were some things that David wrote that are left unfulfilled in him. There are some things that David wrote that are, that are not explained adequately or expounded upon adequately in his life. There are th- some things that David wrote that transcends him. He says, look, this isn't referring to David. It's referring to his descendant, the Messiah. And then he continues and he quotes Psalm 110. He says in verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He's referring to David here as the king, and he says, David is referring to someone who says Lord. How can someone how can another human be the Lord of the highest king in the land? Unless he's referring to something that transcends David. Someone who transcends David. And he says, Look, this is Jesus. He is the Lord. He is the one who is resurrected. He is the one who has not seen corruption. Who you can go today to two different sites in Israel, and I've been to both of them. People claim were most likely the burial site of Jesus, and guess what? He's not there. He's not there at either one. And you'll never find him at any of them. Because what Peter is referring to here is he looks in the Hebrew scriptures, hey, look, let's let's reason on your own premise here. The scriptures themselves, the Old Testament testifies to who Jesus is, to the truth about who he is. And then he says, it's not only that, but it's also the empirical evidence, the historical evidence. Verse 32 He was raised from the dead, Peter says, and we are all witnesses of this fact. So again, Peter, he's appealing to their minds. He he appeals to their understanding of the Hebrew scriptures, and he says, oh, by the way, not only do do the Hebrew scriptures testify to who Jesus was, but but we've seen it. (laughs) Like, we are eyewitness accounts of this. Everything Jesus said came true. Exactly who he he said he was was the truth. We've seen it. We've testified to it. Now, this is important for us because the reason Christianity is the only hope for all people at all times is because it's truth. We're not just saying that it's a feeling or it's an experience that can't be explained. There's an explanation. It's truth. It's, it's, it's written into history. There's empirical evidence. There's data that the scriptures testify to who Jesus is. Christianity does not say that the mind doesn't matter. In fact, it says that we should think, we should think deeply about this. Because the message of Christianity just isn't about how we can be happy. It's saying that there is something that has actually happened in history, and we have to deal with that. We have to reason with that. We have to think about what that looks like. And it's only the message of Christianity that can convince our minds, because it's true. And Peter builds this case, and he continues. He says, not only in the mind that we can be convinced that this is truth, because of who Jesus was, what he did, and we are eyewitnesses of that, but also it cuts to our heart. Look at verse 37, he says, now when they heard that they were cut to the the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now this term, cut to the heart, literally means to be stabbed or pierced. It's painful, right? What is he referring to? What is he talking about when he says they're cut to the heart? Well, let's go back to the beginning of his sermon in verse 22 and 23, in verse 22, again, he addresses these men of Israel. And he says, look, hey, Jesus, he was a real person. He lived. He performed these miracles. And guess what? He says, this Jesus in verse 23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, that's not a very politically correct statement, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> Peter could get in some, some heat for this one, right? He gets up and he says, I got a sermon for you guys. You're like, well, what is it, bro? He says, uh, you killed Jesus as part of God's plan, deal with it, <laughs> right? That's how he opens his sermon. Said, Peter, you need to tone down, man. If you wrote that on Twitter, you would definitely have some, uh, some trolls trying to cancel you on that one, man. That's, like, that's harsh. What is he saying here? He's saying, well, this happened as part of God's plan. This happened according to his foreknowledge. Now, when you think of the word foreknowledge, you're like, that's a weird term. And, and sometimes maybe we, we get confused and we think foreknowledge is like kind of like back to the future, like the DeLorean time machine. You, know, you can go into places and change history. Is that what God's doing? He's kind of like, he's seeing in the corridors of time, he's saying, oh man, I gotta go change that. Like, that's gonna happen. That's not, that's not what it's referring to here. When it says the definite plan of foreknowledge of God, it's talking about foreordaining, something that is definite. God, God had a plan before the creation of the world, and this plan was foreordained, in God. He, he knew what was happening. He had this plan. It was definite. But notice what he says in that same breath. Now that, that's encouraging for us because that reminds us that the death of Jesus was by no accident, right? It wasn't as if God just looked into the future and says, man, I don't know what to do with humanity. Jesus, you give it a try. Like, that's not what, <laughs> that's not what he did, right? This was the plan before creation that Jesus would die on the cross for our sins. But in the same breath, he also says, guess what? You killed him. You killed him. It was according to God's plan, but also you killed him. There's this tension here, right? There's this tension between a sovereign God who had a plan before the foundation of the world and also human responsibility. Now, there's accountability for our actions here. We don't believe in fatalism, that our actions, our, and they don't matter, right? They do matter. What we do and what we say and, and, and how we live our life matters to God and there's this tension point. And in this mystery that is profound, and I don't have enough time to really talk about this in full depth, but in this profound mystery between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, you see what it means to be cut to the heart. Because Peter's not just saying to the individuals who yelled crucify him that you killed him. He's saying we have a universal problem that all of us are the reason Jesus went to the cross. You got to notice something. The, the audience that, Jesus, or that Peter's talking to most likely, the majority of those people were not the ones yelling crucify eight weeks before this. I mean, these people came from all over the world to these festivals. How can he tell them that they killed him? Well, he's also pointing the finger on himself. Because in Luke 22, Peter, many of you may know this story. In Luke 22, Peter is with Jesus and Jesus says, hey, you're going to deny me? And Peter's like, no, I'll never, I'll never deny you. And guess what he does? <laughs> uh, the guy comes to him and says, hey, weren't you one of the, the, the men who was with Jesus when he was arrested? No, no, no. I don't I don't know this Jesus you're talking about. Not once, but three times. He lies, bold-faced lies, to save his own skin. And I'm sure at that moment, Peter felt guilty. I'm sure at that moment, he felt bad about what he did. I mean, he just broke one of the Ten Commandments. He knows he did wrong. But the text says later on, just right later on, That there was a moment, maybe Jesus was going from one room to the next in his trial, that he locked eyes with Peter. And it says in that moment when he locked eyes with Peter, Peter was cut to the heart. He went out weeping bitterly. Why? Because at that moment, sin was not abstract anymore. It was personal. You see, when he tells the audience here, you're the ones who crucified him, what he's talking about here is that our sin, it's not something abstract, it's something personal we're not just those who break rules, we're those who break God's heart. See, that changes things, right? If it's just about breaking rules, then we think, oh God, he's this lawgiver and and he's going to punish us or he's going to come down on us hard. But man, it it takes it to a different level. We think, no, it's not just breaking rules. It's breaking his heart. The one who gave it all for us. And the beauty here is that when we look to the cross, we see God's definite plan. We see that Jesus went to the cross in God's timing and in his sovereignty because he didn't want to let us go. Because in his definite plan, he loved us so much that he was willing to lay down his life for us. But in the same breath, what held Jesus on the cross? It wasn't those nails. It was our sin. And when we wrestle with that, when we begin to realize that, man, I was in the audience yelling crucify him, but I've turned away from him. We all have. We've all fallen short. When we realize that, it cuts to our heart. It really gets to the bottom of what our our real need is as human beings. But at the same time, we look at the cross and we see that Jesus was on that cross. And what kept him on the cross was not just our sin, but his love for us. That his love meets us in our need. And it cuts these men to the heart. It begins to melt their heart. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's why it's good news for the hope for all people. It's because the gospel is the only thing that can do that to us. It's the only thing that can really melt away our hearts to see God's love for us. But then he continues, and he says, that "Just that it didn't just cut them to the heart. There was something that happened after this. It brings new life and purpose." Verse thirty-eight, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, "Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all those who are far off. Everyone whom the uh, the Lord our God calls to Himself." So Peter really tells us four things here in this uh, these two verses here. And the first thing he says is, "Repent." Right? When you feel that you've been cut to the heart, when your mind has been convinced, when you realize that. Jesus is exactly who he said he was. It's truth. And then you realize that, man, I'm I'm the reason he had to die. (laughs) I've sinned. I've fallen short. And it cuts to the heart. What does Peter say? Repent. There's grace. He's there to meet you. And repentance is is literally a word that, that means changing of your mind. And it's changing your mind, not only of your sin, but it's changing your mind of who God is. You don't see him as your adversary. You see him as your loving father. He embraces you. He loves you. He reminds you of his love. And he's given you this new freedom, this new life that you don't have to live in your sin anymore. That's the beauty of repentance is that you can turn from that. You don't have to be captivated by that. You don't have to be constrained to that anymore. You have freedom in Christ from those sins. You get this new freedom when you repent, but then he says, and be baptized. And in baptism, what do we get? We get a new community. We get a new family. Isn't that beautiful? I don't don't know how... Your earthly family is. I don't know if it's great or or if you come from a broken past, but but let me just encourage you with this. Regardless of how great and awesome your family is, there's nothing that compares to being a family member of God. You are a child of God, and you are now brought into a family of like-minded people, brothers and sisters, and baptism is the way we we show that, right? He says you get this new freedom through repentance to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's new life in Christ, and you get a new life too with a new family. Isn't that great? brothers and sisters who love you. And then you get this new power, the gift of the Holy Spirit. This new power to defeat sin in your life, this new power to live with purpose and joy and happiness in life comes through the Holy Spirit and then finally you get a new purpose. In verse 39 he says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now he's speaking to Jews and this is important because as he's speaking to these Jews, he's saying, look, when you become Christians, when you follow Christ, you're going to realize something. That the Gentiles who you thought once were far off, this is available to them as well. You see, there's a new purpose now. Uh, we, don't, we don't just define ourselves by our ethnicity. We don't just define ourselves, whether we're Republican or Democrat. We don't just define ourselves by our hobbies anymore. What defines us is that we follow Jesus. And in that definition, everyone has access to our God. And he says, these guys, these Gentiles, who you once thought were, were literally unclean dogs, are now going to be your brothers and sisters. You have a new purpose. And what the, the gospel does in this is it, it, it changes us, it humbles us, it deals with our prejudices, it, it reminds us that God is for the world in that he's not just for the red states and blue states, it's not just for the United States, but this is the best hope for all people, everyone at all times, because there is no priority, there is no higher land, there is no Mecca that we run to because the kingdom of God is in us and he's empowering us to go forward with his word. That's the purpose we have. And he lands here at the end of this sermon, he says, this is your purpose now. You've been given this new life. This is truth. It's the only thing that really deals with our problems, with our sin. And God meets us with grace and mercy and the gospel. Now, just as we close for a moment, I have three things I think practically we can take away from this. Three things that I want you to, to practically think about applying to your life as you think about how can I how can I follow in the footsteps of Peter? How can, I, how can we follow in the footsteps of the early church proclaiming that this is truly the only hope for all people at all times? Here we go. Number one, courage. Courage. Now, courage in, in speech a lot of times is hard for us but I will tell you, the most brutally honest people in the world, at least in my life, are probably my kids. I mean, they are literally probably the most brutally honest people on the planet. They have little filters, high trust levels, and little or inhibitions in public spaces. I'll give you an example. Uh, One morning, we're on the metro. This is pre-pandemic when people actually rode the metro in rush hour and everybody's packed in there. I was taking Ellie to daycare. and We were riding up the green line and uh, this lady comes in the metro. She clearly had been working out. I don't know if she was at a bar class or if she was running, but she'd come in and and she'd been working out. And, and just to be honest, she was sweating a lot. Like she did, she just had not gotten her cool down uh, period yet. And so she comes, she's right next to Ellie and I. And my daughter looks at me and she says, I don't like the way she smells. <laughs> Ellie, you cannot say that, um, right? She has a little fear, a little ambition, little, little things. That, th- there's nothing that, that really hinders her from speaking the truth of what she was thinking in the moment, right? There's courage there just to speak up of what was truly on her mind. Now, I'm not saying that, that we should do that to people, but when we're filled with the Spirit, when the Spirit has made us alive, when the Spirit testifies to the truth of who Jesus is, that he is loving towards us, that he is living in us, then the truth is that there is no one, no person who is off the radar. You hear that? There's no one who we can definitively say that person will never be able to believe in Jesus. When the Spirit indwells us, it's impossible for us to have that level of fear inside of us. And I know we all have that. If we're honest, there's people on our minds right now. You're probably thinking of people right now who you think, I don't think that person would ever become a Christian. I want to encourage you, don't believe that lie. Paul himself says that the gospel is the power of, Of God unto salvation for anyone who believes. So even if people, your neighbors, your friends, even if they're not necessarily warm to the Christian faith right now, have courage like Peter. Be bold with clarity. Have courage to stand and speak. Because if Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, then I promise you he can convince your skeptical friend of the truth. Have courage. Number two, joy. Having hope. And knowing that this hope, this message that Pentecost is the hope for all people at all times, brings great joy to our lives. When I was uh, in college, or right about graduating college, I went on a little celebration trip on the 4th of July with some friends. And we went to the Cheesecake Factory, because that was a big deal where I grew up, right? There was not a lot of restaurants. So Cheesecake Factory was like big time. Uh, and you get t- cheesecake, so it's the best of both worlds. You get great food and cheesecake all in one. We go, and we, have, we have a great celebration. There's about six of us, and we rack up a, a pretty hefty bill. I mean, it was like, I think it was like $350 at the Cheesecake Factory, which is a lot of money <laughs> to spend at the Cheesecake Factory, okay? Um, and we rack up this huge bill, and when we come to, at the end, to pay with our credit cards, uh, the lady says, hey, I just want you to know that your bill's been paid for. I'm thinking, who just covered this? Apparently, there's these two ladies who were listening to our conversation, and they just felt compelled to cover the bill for us. And I walked away from there filled with so much joy and gratitude. I mean, I, I, I got that story somehow in every single sentence the next week because I was so happy for what happened that I didn't have to spend that kind of money at the Cheesecake Factory, that someone did that. Like, There's just gratitude and joy in my life, that that debt was canceled. I mean, I just I, I wanted to do everything I could. So I'd go to Starbucks, and I was just like, I'm going to pay it for today. Why? Because someone paid $350 at the Cheesecake Factory for me, right? Like This is nothing compared to that. So much joy, so much gratitude in my heart. But the fact is, if Jesus Christ is truly the risen Savior, and we have this hope within us, then we live forgiven lives. This means he has entered our lives, and he has canceled our debt. And it is way better than $350 at the Cheesecake Factory. It's way better than that. And just like I couldn't stop talking about those ladies, man. People couldn't get me to to shut up. I didn't feel like I, I had to talk about it. I wanted to talk about it. I wanted to share that joy because it was such a remarkable thing that those ladies did for us. In the same way, when we really believe and understand this hope of this message, we really believe of the gratitude and joy we have because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, in the same way, we should speak with great joy. And what Christ has done for us is so great. He's canceled our debt, and it's way bigger than 350 bucks, and it proves that he has the power to forgive our sins. And then finally, assurance. We can have assurance, That as we proclaim this hope that we have in Jesus, the hope that is for all people at all times, that by God's Spirit, people will respond. And the assurance there is that it's not up to us. And that's actually a good thing. (laughs) It takes the pressure off, doesn't it? That's not up to us. God works in imperfect people, He works beautifully through misfits, failures, and outcasts. I mean, He's using Peter. Peter had so many problems. I mean, we could preach a sermon just on the problems of Peter, and yet 3,000 men, 3,000, 3,000 people repent and believe in Jesus. He uses misfits. He uses failures. He uses outcasts. He uses people beautifully in a community just like King's Church, people who, who perhaps don't feel like they measure up, people who perhaps feel like they're on the outside and not on the inside, Of this life. People perhaps who feel like, and you know what I'm talking about here, you were not going to be the first person picked on the kickball team in school, right? I mean, if you feel like you fit any of those categories, God can use you just like he used Peter to rewrite history. And the assurance here is that it's not in our own power, it's not in our own selves that he does this, but by his spirit. He works in us, and the encouragement for us is just like at Pentecost, people will respond. Have faith in Jesus today. Put your hope in him, because the gospel message is the only hope for all people at all times. It's the only hope that can actually convince the mind of truth. It's the only hope that cuts to the heart of who we are. And it's the only hope that brings true life and purpose.